Good evening. Well, except for Jeremy, we all realize winter has arrived this evening. Jeremy is a real man. Shorts and flip-flops tonight when it's 15 degrees outside or something. So, hey, it's good to be with you. It's my blessing to be able to share tonight a couple prayer requests for you from the body. First off, many of you know Mike and Judy Slack, who are over in Uganda. Mike actually was in the hospital yesterday with extreme pain in his abdomen. Turns out he has kidney stones and a kidney infection on top of that in Uganda. So um, he spent the night in the hospital in Kampala. He's home resting comfortably, um, not in a lot of pain at this point on antibiotics. And he gets the joy of letting the stones pass naturally. So um, they say it's the closest thing a guy can uh, endure that would give them any idea of what it's like to deliver a baby. So, pray for Mike. And then Dave DeFazio, Dave and Barb, you know, many of you know Dave had surgery um, yesterday, had his rotator cuff and some bone spurs and some cleanup work done on his left shoulder. And at the same time, in preparation for a shoulder replacement, on the right side had a tendon snipped to alleviate some inflammation. So um, he um, spent the night in the hospital. He's home today, but be praying for um, him and probably more so Barb as she tends to Dave in his weakness. So, Anyway, as you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9, um, one of the reasons I love sharing prayer requests is because I know the prayers of this body have great effect. And God hears your prayers. I know that personally because you've been praying for me for most many of you for over four years now. So I actually did um, have a couple of appointments with my speech therapist and um, good news, bad news um, as you all know my speech has slowed down I've lost about 30 words per minute reading over the last year 50 words per minute over the last couple of years so obviously that slowed down 
the good news is I had a swallow test and a and very minimal advancement um, on that front. So um, we were all expecting uh, much more um, or greater progression in that area, but everything looked pretty good today. So, um, and in it all, I'm still standing here speaking. Amen. Now, why the vocally challenged person gets two chapters to teach tonight, I'm not sure, but it's what the Lord does. So, with that, I'm not going to read every word. Uh, reference 123 words per minute. It would take me all night to read every word. But um, what we're going to do is highlight the remaining plays up until the 10th. And then obviously we'll look at the 10th and the institution of the Passover on its own. So we're going to work our way through chapters 9 and 10 as best as we can. But... uh, just set up the stage, I have a few points that I want to um, share regarding the place. Um, obviously, by the end of tonight, leading up to the climactic 10th play, um, which most of us know more about than the first nine, those first nine are really broken up into um, three threes. The first three plagues kind of go together, the next three, and then the next three. It's interesting to note that the first, the fourth, and the seventh plague all start with an instruction from the Lord telling Moses in the morning, go and talk to the Pharaoh. And we really see that as dividing up these groupings of plagues. If we were to look at the plagues, we'd say the first three really create a level of discomfort, not just for the Egyptians, but we would know that by implication even Israel was enduring those plagues at some level. But they were more discomfort than anything else. But when we begin to look at the next three, not only is there discomfort, but now destruction is coming upon the land. And by the time we get to the last three, Um, there's a real fear of life or dread that comes with those last three. So we see this progression of the plagues, this heightened level of judgment of the Lord going from discomfort to um, damage, greater damage and destruction to this 
foreboding fear of life or dread that comes with the final plagues leading up, obviously, to the tent. And so, what is happening during these plagues is there are so many different parts to it, right? Um, God is trying to establish that he's greater. Uh, Pastor Austin brought out so eloquently, you know, that God was trying to establish himself so that the Pharaoh, so that the nation of Egypt, and I would also include the Israelites, would know that he is God, that he is God over everything. And so through these plagues, he's systematically um, dismantling within this territory the gods that they would have been worshiping, the greater gods, the gods that they trusted in. I wonder if God allowing Israel as a nation here, as a people, to endure some of the plagues was not his way of even cleansing them, knowing that living in the land, perhaps some of the false worship and false idolatry had crept into their lives, you know, and mixed itself in with the true worship of God that they had been instructed in and had been led in. Um, obviously, God is going to establish the law and all that after this time. But clearly, he had already established himself as the God of Abraham, as the God of Isaac, as the God of Jacob, the God who looks to people to walk in faith. And yet, it's easy even for us who sit here tonight, who I believe are people that I, if I ask for a show of hands, are you committed to the things of the Lord? All of you would probably raise your hand. Do you love the Lord? Yes. Do you want to follow his commandments? Yes. Is he the only God in your life? Yes. And yet, if we're honest, there are times where other things can take him off the throne. And we can worship other gods, gods that this world puts in front of us. And somehow, some way, we can find ourselves mixing in the gods of this world with our worship of the God who we say we love and follow. You guys with me? So we've seen four plagues up till this point, And God is systematically going after the gods that they would rely on. And I think the question always for us as we look at this, and again, Pastor Austin brought this out, is it's easy for us to read this. And even as I would give you names of gods and say, well, I don't worship that God. 
But I think the point of this for you and I tonight as we spin it forward is though we may not worship, for instance, um, Hopi or Osiris, who are gods of the Nile, or Hect, who was that frog goddess that Austin brought up, or the god Geb, who was the god of earth and desert, from which the lice rose, or Kepri, the beetle-headed god of creation, who many people believe is the god that God was trying to go after when he raised up the flies, the swarms of flies. We may not worship those gods, but what is the gods that we worship apart from the Lord and how easily those things can creep in? So we see him judge the gods over the Nile, who was the, which was the lifeblood of Egypt, right? I mean, consider Egypt in the middle of the desert. The Nile is literally the vein of their lifeblood. It's the water they drink. It's the water that they use to grow crops. And without it, there is no crops. Without water, there is no life. And the Nile was worshipped. And there were gods of the Nile and gods of fertility and gods of the earth and the desert, god of over-creation. And so as we pick up in chapter 9, the plagues continue with the fifth plague in verse 1 of chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. You know, it's interesting to me that God's instructions are never really that complicated. I mean, it's been the same instruction over and over again, hasn't it? Let my people go. What don't you understand about those words, Pharaoh? And yet, we can go back to the Garden of Eden. One instruction, just don't eat from that one tree. And man just can't comprehend how simple and direct and clear God's instructions are. But he sends Moses and Aaron back with the same instruction. Let my people go that they may serve me. God identifies himself with the people he calls Israel his people and the point of it all is so that they can come and serve me. But if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field. 
on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And so God, in his mercy, it is amazing to me, four times he's, he's come with plagues. On the fifth time, he once again in his mercy sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh and says, hey, this is going to happen if you don't let my people go. And I find in my own life, maybe you find it in your life, it's not that the Lord doesn't tell me, here's the direction I want you to go. And it's not that I don't understand even the consequences if I don't go in that direction. The point is, is do I... Am I willing to obey the instruction of the Lord? Let my people go, Pharaoh. If you don't, here's the consequence. And this consequence is going to be that the livestock of Egypt are going to go through a severe pestilence. And there's going to be a loss of livestock. And once again, we read the Lord is going to make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, such that the livestock of Egypt will go through this, but the livestock of Israel will not be touched. And for us as believers... You know, we live in a world that ultimately is going to come under the judgment of the Lord. And yet, I find comfort in knowing that I have a God who can lift me up and protect me. And though the world rages around me, can give me peace and comfort and strength in the face of things that go on around me. I mean, put yourself in Israel's place here. They're about to watch all the livestock of Egypt come under this judgment, and yet their livestock is not going to be touched. I believe that as these plagues have come on, it's been a purifying thing for the people of Israel. And as a result now, we see God, as he's purifying them in their faith and belief in him, now creating this difference where his hand is upon them and protecting them even from things that would go on around them. And it's the Lord, not men, who will make that difference and we can draw encouragement from that. And of course, God does that in verse 7. 
even the Pharaoh is beginning to understand that when Moses comes and says these things, they most likely are going to happen. But he doesn't want to give credence to it. So he sends out, as it were, spies to see if what God said was going to happen actually happened. And it was reported back to him that, yep, the livestock of Israel is fine, though ours is not. In verse 8, so the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace, and let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh, and it would become fine dust in all the land of Egypt. And it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And so they took the ashes from the furnace and did that. Notice in verse 11, those that they would have trusted in for as healers, the magicians could not stand before Moses because they too were afflicted with the boils. And so, one thing that I caught as I was looking through this passage is the Lord had them go remove ashes from the furnaces and toss that in the air. These most likely would have been the same furnaces by which the Israelites were afflicted in the making of bricks. So he takes that very, one of the very vehicles of affliction that Pharaoh had placed upon them and turns that back around upon him. And I thought, isn't that a spiritual law? You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. And again, for us, I think it's important that we understand as we read through this, it's easy for us to look at this and go, yeah, that's Pharaoh. Yeah, that's Pharaoh. Never stopping to realize that we're but a step or two or a glance away from the Lord of finding ourselves marching down paths and allowing things to be established in and through our lives. That that spiritual law of you reap what you sow could very well come into play in our lives. And so here they're sowing affliction through the furnace and then God as he's judging them, takes the very ashes from that furnace to affect this next judgment, casting it into the air as a fine dust. And the result is this producing of boils, or literally it's the word burning. Uh, It formed boils or blisters. Some might even say, a form of leprosy upon the people. 
and the magicians again themselves um, were afflicted. In verse 12 we read for the first time here, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not heed them just as the Lord has spoken to Moses. Now I know that uh, we've addressed this point before, but here we see that it says all along the that Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and we read here the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I know that we've been well taught and instructed that what that means literally is more that God released Pharaoh to move in the direction of which his heart was already going. When my daughter Sarah, I'll give you a word picture. When my daughter Sarah was about five or six years old, we had moved in to our new house and her bedroom was on the second floor and her and her mother got in some kind of little argument. Not that Michelle was arguing, but Sarah was arguing. And somehow Sarah just got really upset. And the next thing I know, I hear my little five or six-year-old say, that's it. I'm moving to grandma and grandpa's house. And goes marching up stairs and slams her door to her bedroom. And it was so the Lord. Because my first reaction was, who does she think she is? That's it. Get the spoon. But then, in, in, as only the Lord can give wisdom, um, all you young parents grab this one. I walked upstairs, opened up her door, reached into her closet, got her Minnie Mouse suitcase out, opened it up, put it on her bed, opened up her drawers and started taking clothes out and putting it in the suitcase. She looked at me and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm helping you pack to move to my grandpa's house. She said, you can't do that. I said, I'm the dad. Of course I can do that. And your heart says you want to go there. And because I love you, I'm going to let you go there. And of course, at that point, she started crying, putting her clothes away, put the suitcase away, and went downstairs and apologized to her mother. Well, in essence, that's what it means that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He didn't make Pharaoh's heart hard. Pharaoh 
harden his heart. He's just coming along. He's just coming along saying, let me help you pack the suitcase. That's the direction your heart wants to go. I'll just help you along the path. Does that make sense? And so as we read this, God is just now allowing this to proceed because he has a purpose and a plan in all of it. So the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had previously told Moses that it would be the case. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. Again, the exact same instruction. For at this time, I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. Now, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. God is saying, I've been, even though you may not feel I've been merciful. And so many times in our lives, when we choose to go against God, and then God's right judgment comes upon us because of that, with the consequences, we want to turn back and look at God and say, How could you do this to me, God? And God's in heaven going, if I'd given you what you deserve, you'd be eternally separated from me and cut off. Oh, how merciful the Lord is, even here with Pharaoh, once again, coming and giving him the opportunity and now even further instruction saying, hey, look, if I wanted to cut you off, I could have easily done that. I'm continuing to give you opportunity here. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Now let's make sure we understand in verse 16 when he says, For this purpose I raised you up. Some might read that and believe, Whoa, so what God is saying is God raised up this disobedient, hard-hearted, lost person condemned to hell for the express purpose of raining down judgment on Egypt. That's not what is being said here. Pharaoh's heart was already hardened. God already knew the character of this one Pharaoh. 
He just simply took this person who already had that character and raised him up into a position as Pharaoh to affect his purposes in the lives of his people. And we need to see that rightly. We, you know, so often we have those questions about the God of the Old Testament. How can he be a God of love? He, he kills people. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. I mean, what right does God have to judge Pharaoh if he hardened his heart? And all these kinds of questions when in reality man stands alone responsible for the condition of their heart. But the sovereign God who is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, and all-present in every situation and circumstances in his sovereignty raises up people, takes down people, establishes people, removes people as he sees fit, not making them into the person that they are. They did that. But using them for his divine purposes in this world. And so he raised up Pharaoh into the position he's in to accomplish his divine purpose in this world. As yet, you exalt yourself against my people in that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as has not been seen in Egypt since his founding until now. And look at how gracious God is. First, I could have cut you off, but I haven't. Yet you continue to exalt yourself. But let me tell you what's going to happen. I'll even tell you when it's going to happen. It doesn't have to happen. You could just humble yourself and let my people go. I'll give you till tomorrow to make the right choice. And not only that, hey, I'll give you this. Therefore, send now, gather all your livestock and all that you have in the field. For the hell shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. So he tells them, let my people go. I know you're not going to do it because you're exalt, you continue to exalt yourself above me, but I'm going to give you the time frame and even the opportunity to pull your what livestock is left and your servants and everything from the field before this hail comes down. Now, rain is not unknown in Egypt. And uh, hail isn't even unknown in Egypt, though hail in Egypt is more like 
grovel up here in uh, Montana, little tiny pellets. But lightning storms, they really don't know. And all three of them together, they would not have a clue. It's paramount to, or tantamount to what I think Pastor Steve was talking about when Noah, you know, build an ark, I'm sending rain. Okay, two questions. What's an ark and what's rain, right? They have no clue what they're about to encounter here, but God gives them the opportunity to not have it happen or at least protect people. Look at verse 20. He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of the Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses, but he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. And so all of a sudden, for the first time here, we begin to read that there are some in Egypt who are now beginning to heed and fear the word of the Lord. And we know that we would know if we read ahead this was the case because by the time Israel is leading or leaving Egypt, it says there was a mixed multitude that went with them. And certainly within that mixed multitude would have been Egyptians who came to fear the God of Israel over the gods of Egypt. And so there are some that begin to follow the Lord's word. And then the instruction comes from the Lord to Moses to bring about the hail. And it says in verse 24, So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt. All that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail struck every herb or herb, herb or herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Verse 26, only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hell. Verse 27, And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. Okay, it only took seven plagues. I have sinned this time. The previous six I haven't sinned. This time I've sinned. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering in hell, for it is enough. I will let you go 
and you shall stay no longer. And so it appears that finally the Pharaoh has been broken. I've sinned this time. I'm wicked. My people are wicked. Entreat the Lord that the hail and fire would stop, and I'll let you go. Moses, of course, goes out the next day. Actually, he says to the Pharaoh, As soon as I've gone out of the city, I'll spread my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hell. But that you would know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know you will not yet fear the Lord. And I think Moses said this because God had already told Moses that he was going to have to judge greatly the Pharaoh and lead, and that the Pharaoh would actually lead them out with a strong hand, so to speak. And otherwise, in other words, Pharaoh is going to push them out of Egypt just to get rid of them. In verse 31, make note of the fact it says, The flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and spout were not struck, for they are late crops. And so as we look at these judgments that have been coming upon, we see God dealing with um, more gods of Egypt. We see in the livestock that he judges most likely the goddess Hathor, who was a cow-like, you know, Austin had the frog-like woman, well, there was a goddess who had the head of a cow, and she was over um, happiness and good tidings, right? As if the death of livestock would bring happiness and glad tidings. And of course, Imhotep was the god of medicine, and the boils would have judged that, and now Newt, the sky goddess over all things that would come from the sky is being judged here. And, um, and yet, there's more gods to be judged. And God is systematically increasing the levels of judgment. First, the livestock is dying off. Now, their barley and the early crops are affected and have lost that. And by the time the locusts show up, the rest of their crops and trees are taken away and they're left with essentially no means of feeding themselves. Um, and all this is just leading to greater levels of doom and destruction within Egypt. So Moses went out of the city. He does what he says he's going to do. And of course, in verse 34, we read, And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sent yet more, 
more and harden his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard, and he didn't let the children of Israel go. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord." And so, God now is going to send Moses and Aaron once again back before the Pharaoh. And he says, again reiterating, the point of this is that Pharaoh and his people would know that I am the God over all the earth. And yet he adds to it that you, Moses... And the nation of Israel would be able to tell their sons and their sons' sons of the great and mighty work of the Lord in delivering them from Egypt. And we begin to understand that in every circumstance, in every situation that we as individuals are confronted with, God is always trying to to teach us. God is always trying to grow us. I can't think of one circumstance and situation that I have found myself in, whether it's me personally going through it or walking through it with somebody else or ministering in the midst of it, where even I, as I walk away from those times, don't learn lessons for my own life. Everything is being used, as we know, for our good. Every circumstance, every situation, whether it's you personally, or whether it's a friend, or a loved one, or a situation you find yourself ministering within, don't ever assume that you're only there just to be there but to really be able to reflect upon it and grab hold of lessons. The point here was not just to judge Egypt and the Pharaoh, but to teach even his own people, Israel, of how great and mighty a God they had as he, as he moved to deliver them from the hand of the Pharaoh. And so he gives that instruction to Moses, and I think it's an instruction we need to see as well. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. If nothing else, God is consistent in his word. Amen? Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow 
I will bring locusts in your territory. They shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth. They shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from hell. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses, the houses of your servants, the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from the Pharaoh. Now, after the seventh play, you'd think Pharaoh would finally get it. And here Moses and Aaron come back in again and give him the opportunity to do what's right. But look at Pharaoh's response in verse 7. How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know the Pharaoh's servants, by the way, not the Pharaoh, said to him, Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? So now Pharaoh's own servants are looking at Pharaoh going, How long are you going to let this go on? Every time this guy shows up and pronounces a judgment, it happens. Don't you know at this point, Egypt is all but destroyed? And if you don't let his people go, he's now said he's sending a locust, and what the hell and fire didn't destroy, the locust will. And we'll be left with nothing. The level with which the locusts are predicted to come in, most people say it would have taken multiple years to even possibly begin to recover from that. So this isn't a judgment that next year is gone. This is utterly destroying the livelihood of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron were brought again to the Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? Moses said, as he said before, We will go with our young and our old, our sons and our daughters, Our flocks and our herds, we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. And he said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. And they were driven out of the presence of Pharaoh. So the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb 
and of the land all that the hail has left. So Moses did that. In verse 15, For they, the locusts, covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb, herb of the land and all the fruit trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Verse 16, Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once. Wow. And entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. So he went out from the Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord turned a very strong west wind which took locusts away. But verse 20, obviously the Pharaoh's heart was still not humbled because it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he didn't let the children go. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. So... In the sequence of three plagues, there's a familiar pattern. They all start within the morning. They all end with the third plague of the, of the three, where Moses and Aaron don't go in to the Pharaoh. In here, you would see that they're pushed out of the presence of the Pharaoh, and without even going back before him, God brings the next judgment upon him. And this judgment is darkness. And it's not just a darkness, but a darkness that can be felt. Um, I, I don't know how to describe that to you. I've been in utter darkness one time. I was hiking through the um, the tunnel that Hezekiah um, built from the um, Gihon Spring through bedrock to the Pool of Siloam inside the gates of Jerusalem. And they stopped up the Gahon Spring and rerouted it through this tunnel so that if the city of Jerusalem was besieged, they had water. 
And you can actually today hike through that tunnel. And when you do, they'll give you a 30-minute candle, and it takes 30 minutes to walk through the tunnel. So we started walking through it, and I was the last in line. And so the group got out ahead of me, and I stopped. And I had my lighter in one hand, and I blew out the candle. And in that moment, because there were turns, there was no light. It felt like an hour. It was probably 15 seconds of just utter blackness where all of a sudden you don't know up from down, right from left. If it wasn't that I was standing near the cave wall so that I could touch it, I'm sure I would have fallen over. That and the fact that there was still water that runs through it that's cold, so my feet were in water. But even in that very short period of time, there was this blackness that was so disorienting. And imagine six nights. I mean, consider it. It was three days, but six nights. Because the sun never had its effect of utter blackness. They couldn't even leave their house. They couldn't see. No light shone. That means God stopped up even the light of the moon. And what lights the stars would reflect. The heaviness of the darkness kept them from being able to light their lanterns or lamps. There was literally no light, except in one place, in the dwellings of Israel, the people of Israel, in the land of Goshen. There was light in their dwellings, like a city sitting on a hill. God is shining forth his light through his people. And I thought about that and how God calls us in the darkness of this world to reflect his light. Because make no mistake about it, it was his light shining in the land of Goshen. Whether supernaturally he was illuminating their homes or whether he was supernaturally giving them the ability to light lanterns in their home, at the end of the day it was God's light reflecting in their homes. And this is God's home. And he's called us to reflect his light. It's his light. We have nothing to offer, right? 
And this is God's, for me, this is God's final push to somehow break through to the Pharaoh. Don't you get it? Don't you get it? Look to the light. Yeah, we know that it doesn't happen. In verse 24, the Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. I'm reminded that partial obedience is still disobedience to the word of the Lord. And the Pharaoh continues to try and barter and bargain with God, playing lip service to obedience and offering up partial obedience when God is asking for simple obedience to one command, let my people go that they may serve me. In his unwillingness to walk in obedience, even though it appears that he's trying to walk at some level in obedience, is just downright disobedience before the Lord and is the reason why judgment continues to come. And I think that's a good lesson for us in light of the word of God. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And that Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself, and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. So Moses said, You have spoken well. I will never see your face. Again, so the gods of Egypt are being judged. We see the god Set, who was the protector of the crops. And then here in this ninth plague, the god Ra, the sun god, is judged. And that had to have struck home very closely to Pharaoh. Because the Pharaoh was thought to be the son of Ra. And so when the sun god is judged, how could the son of that god think judgment wouldn't come upon him? God has brought it all the way to the greatest of gods that they have, Ra. And yet, and we see Pharaoh won't turn. So as we close, man, we made it through two chapters. That's pretty good. Uh, some thoughts as we close. 
and I'll just run through these. I judged them, them down. In these judgments that God brought upon the nation of Egypt, we learn some things. We have some examples set for us. Four things I jotted down as an example and what we learn by looking at the Pharaoh. Stubbornness causes you to not hear clearly the word of God. Stubbornness will keep you from hearing the word of God. Pride blinds you to the work that God is doing. I mean, consider the arrogance and pride that the Pharaoh must have had to not be able to acknowledge that this is the hand of a God that is far greater than any gods he worships, or certainly far greater than him, yet in his pride, he's blinded to that. Disobedience or partial or partial obedience invites greater judgments of God upon us and upon others and those around us. God is not looking for partial obedience. He's looking for full obedience. And whether you're disobedient or walking in partial obedience, that's not good enough for God. And God's going to do what God needs to do in our lives and in others' lives to draw us to the point of surrendering our will to Him and letting His will spring forth in our life. And number four... Narcissism, or the exalting and worship of self, will lead you to reject God. At the end of the day, the only God in Pharaoh's life was Pharaoh. And in his worship of himself, in his exalting of himself, He rejects God fully as the God over all the earth. And the devastation that that's brought to this point and will bring in the tenth plague all rests in his rejection of God. Now, on the flip side, what we learn through Moses, Aaron, and Israel are a few things. One, obeying God may not always bring expected relief. I mean, Moses and Aaron fully obeyed God. They could have had the expectation that in obeying God, they would find relief in that, and yet not always. Obeying God has to be enough regardless of what happens afterwards. 
Obedience is what God is looking for. Number two, serving God doesn't always bring immediate results. You go out, you serve Him, you expect certain things to happen. They may or may not. But again, obedience and serving God are what we need to be doing, not based on relief or results. Number three, witnessing God move should give us confidence to trust Him and walk in full obedience. There is no bargaining with God. It's full obedience and anything less then full obedience is disobedience. 90% obedience is disobedience because God's looking for full obedience. But the point is, is he's proven he's trustworthy. He's proven who he is. How many of us have seen God move in our lives and in other lives. It's not that we don't know who he is or how great he is. It simply comes down to whether we're going to trust him. And if we trust him, then we find the freedom to walk in full obedience. And lastly, enduring hardships in the Lord allows us to shine as lights in the darkness. Whether it's a hardship in our own life or watching hardship happen around us, God is calling us in and all to shine forth His radiance and His glory. That's what At the end of it all, that's what this life is all about, is exalting God and letting his light shine through us that others may see it. And make no mistake about it, spiritually, this world we live in is no less dark than the darkness of the ninth plague. But we serve a God who supernaturally can transform our lives and shine forth his radiance in such a way that hopefully some, not all, but some may be drawn to him.